Hello and welcome to the 104th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Thursday the 26th of September 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week we welcome James, who I met recently at the CPGB Communist University in Goldsmiths this summer. We give a thorough analysis of the event, our thoughts on the talks, the people we met there and our overall general impression. For those unaware, Mike McNair, whose book Revolutionary Strategy we are currently studying on the podcast, is a member of the CPGB. He gave a number of talks related to the book, and this was where I got to sit down with him and talk about Brexit, along with a very noisy fridge, in the most recent episodes. If you'd like to support the show, you can join the Patreon gang gang for only $5 a month, which works out at only $1 an episode. Patrons get access to all the Patreon-only bonus episodes, the right to vote on the Reading Group series, and other cool stuff too. When we reach 100 patrons, we'll be producing a second Patreon-only podcast every month. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel, and make sure to like, subscribe, and share. You can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the discussion. So we have here today, welcome to the gaff, we've got uh, James, how's it going? I'm good. I met James there, we both went to the CPGB PCC Communist University in Goldsmiths, how long ago now? A month ago? About a month and a half ago, I think. Yeah, so we thought we'd do, uh, is it that long? I think so, it's at the beginning of August and now it's almost the end of September. Oh Christ, I have no idea. <laughs> right, so it was like yeah, six weeks ago or something. So we thought we'd do a bit of a review. So... First of all, James, who are you? I am a guy in my late 30s from London, and I thought it might be interesting to discuss that I kind of met Tom through doing his podcast, and I think that in and of itself is interesting in that we actually met in the real world at the CPGB's Communist University, because I think we're both... Meet space. Meet space. We meet did <laughs> in meet space. Uh, we're both individuals who've got radicalised later in life, so didn't experience one of these groups in our formative years at university or in our 20s. And we've been both reading theory and reading history, and I found Tom's podcast, and that was really helpful. And I think that there's this dynamic at play where when you're engaging with a lot of this stuff in the abstract and at the theoretical level, there comes a point where you feel you have to engage with this stuff practically in the real world. Yeah, And so for... A couple of years now I've been reading The Weekly Worker and I think I came across it originally from, again, listening to a podcast. <laughs> so in a way it's this form of being an alienated Marxist <laughs> alone, listening to other people who are reading the same things as you and thinking the same things as you, but not really engaging with it in the real world. So it's a quite strange experience. And I'd encountered McNair, I think, either through Derek Vaughan or Donald Parkinson, either on Swampside or on Derek's podcast, and I'd read his book and I'd found it a very clear, succinct and clarifying statement about how these politics are still relevant and can still be applied and the power of looking back at the mistakes and errors of the 20th century in order to learn and build a politics that still has relevance and can still be powerful. And as a result of that, I started reading The Weekly Worker 
And I think the Weekly Worker has a reputation on the radical left for being a kind of a, a scurrilous gossip-mongering rag of the left. But I think there's a serious point in there that they do see it as valid to critique their contemporaries. And as with, and I think this is what's relevant, it's one of the reasons I even went to Communist University, was that there are many lines the CPGB have that are the closest to my own. So of all the sects I've looked at and all the lines, the ones that resound with me are theirs. So What are they? The way that they view the balance of forces within the Labour Party, a lot of their foreign policy writing, and this is another thing about the Weekly Worker, that it's, it's really good at covering foreign policy in Turkey, in Iran, uh, the line they tend to take on imperialism, I usually broadly agree with, uh, a lot of their analysis of the UK situation, so both the Labour Party situation, but also the broader conflict, going on things like Brexit, a lot of the stuff you read, and it's it's better than most of the bourgeois press. So, you know, it, it's it's an it's an interesting publication to read beyond the theoretical stuff that you get from people like Metner. So Metner's in there, you know, every other week writing a new article. So you're getting that, and you're getting contemporary stuff that is pretty good. Obviously, not all of it, but a lot of it is good stuff. Yeah. So we we, we met. Uh, we went. What was the one that we went to? What was, what was the first one we met? At? Well, I I think prior to the one we went to, I was actually there on the first. Saturday at the opening session, which was Graham Bash, who was speaking about the Labour Party. It was about it was about the situation with the Labour Party. Is how how can we transform the Labour Party into a vehicle for socialism? What was that like? Well, interesting enough, there were cries from the floor because he didn't. He he opened by saying, "I'm not going to talk about the title." <laughs> so he didn't fulfill his booking remit. But he essentially gave an overview of the current situation within the Labour Party and how it is acting as a vehicle for socialism or not, what the limitations are. It was pretty interesting. There wasn't anything that I think if you're kind of paying attention to contemporary politics, you might not necessarily already know, particularly if you're looking at Labour politics from a kind of more radical left perspective. What was interesting was that historically he's a member of the Labour Representation Committee, What's which that? is it's one of these smaller groups that have existed within the Labour Party. Probably the most well known is the CLPD, the Campaign for Labour Party Democracy, which was John Landsman, who now runs Momentum, is associated with. The LRC is well known now because it's one of the factions that John McDonnell has historically been associated with. So Corbyn's often kind of been backed from the CLPD and McDonnell's always been backed by the LRC. And they act as kind of internal pressure groups, rallying members, attempting to make changes in internal democracy. So they will advise members who are within CLPs to vote for certain motions, that kind of thing. And Bash has been... Uh, he might even be a founding member of the LRC, I don't know, he's been associated with them for a long time. But I think for a lot of the people in that kind of milieu of the Labour Party, this Corbyn moment is do or die for these guys. They really see it as this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And he kind of made that point again and again. And it was interesting that from the floor, McNair kind of counselled against putting all of your hope in that one basket. He was arguing that kind of, you know, the point that he's made in the book. book. Strategy of patience, be careful, 
have to wait for the forces to gather. And he, you know, cited Syriza. And it was interesting how violently Bash reacted to that from the chair. I would say of all of the talks I went to over the course of the week, I didn't see... It wasn't... He just he just couldn't believe what McNair was saying. He was like, what are you talking about? We've got this amazing opportunity. What are you talking about? He's like, get out of here. <laughs> you know? And he didn't quite say it. He tried to remain comradely, but he was sitting in the chair shaking his head. So that was quite interesting. And then I didn't... Because I, I work and I have kids, so and maybe it's important to talk about the form of the... Uh, the communist university. Yeah, go on. So it's in Goldsmiths, and most people who are there are, are residents, so they're staying in halls of residence. And because it's during the summer, the students are gone, so Goldsmiths are making money from empty halls. And I think you'll be able to speak better than me to what kind of camaraderie between the people who were staying there kind of that created. But it also meant that there were some comrades from other, peop- other places aside from the UK. So maybe, and you managed to talk to those guys. So I'd be really interested to hear about some of the cats mm. that you met who were attending and staying. Yeah, it was interesting. There was some young lads from from the Dutch Socialist Party, and there was four, maybe five of them. One is a Dutch podcaster who got out, said I, I I'd go on his show, and I said I'd have him on to talk about what they're doing, but I can't uh, remember where I put his email address. So they were actually, some of them had actually been listening to the, the McNair series. One of them had been listening to the McNair series we're doing on the podcast. But they've actually been doing the McNair stuff for real. They've been in the Socialist Party in Holland, which is, at one stage, a few years, like two years ago or three years ago, it was getting like 30% in the polls, like an ex, it's kind of like a weird ex-Maoist slash trot group of some type. And these kids were trying to, there were young guys, like some of them, you know, maybe not even 20. One, one older guy who was a podcaster. But they were trying to democratise the party and take away the power from the Central Committee. Let the General Assembly of the or whatever be the highest body. And uh, it was really cool to talk to these young guys. Like, they were actually trying it. They were in some... They were, they were doing it. Uh, they had a kind of a, essentially... A faction, but it was, I think factions might have been even banned in their organization. The same old rubbish of all these organizations. So it was like, it was like really cool to talk to these kids. You know, you're doing the podcast and you're sitting in your room or you're reading theory on your own. And then you talk to some kids who are, God, I'm actually doing something in a party that I think now in, in Holland they've had a, they've, they've had some really bad political decisions and the party is back down to like 5% or something. But it's like, Still, 5%, like a party that would have 5% in any major Western country, like a European country, like with PR, is a major party. It's an actual party with land and buildings and stuff where they can host stuff. Actual infrastructure. And money. You know what I mean? As opposed to like, you know, like the CPGB was 30, 30, I don't know how many people, but like whatever, small number of trots that, that, that meet in pubs and stuff like this, you know. So it's like, it would be much bigger than the Green Party in, in the UK, you know, for example. It would probably be many times the size of the Green Party in the UK with representatives in Parliament. So that was really cool, to be honest, which uh, was quite inspiring for me to meet them guys. You know, it's hard to know people's politics when you meet them, but the guys seem kind of sound. They're talking and arguing about the underlying stuff of re-democratising the fact that it should be even a thing 
yeah. on the left that you have to democratise. It's beyond belief. It's beyond belief how you can read Marx and Engels or any of these people and then come up with party structures that are anti-democratic. It's goddamn beyond belief. Next, what we, what, what's next? <laughs> Later in the week, which I think was maybe the day that we met, I think it was the, the Thursday, so in the morning it was Hillel Tictum was speaking, who's another writer who I encountered through his work in The Weekly Worker. He's really good. Um, and I'd, I'd actually hoped to go the day before, because I think of the two talks that he did, the talk he did the day before, which was on the decline of socioeconomic systems in our epoch, would have maybe been, for me personally, the more interesting one. But the one on Thursday was also really interesting, and it drew on uh, Tickton's own experiences of essentially being an exchange student in the USSR in the 70s, because he was uh, over there studying for I think he said five or six years. Did he do his PhD over there? I think he did. He did, think, he did he his got, masters, or maybe finished his PhD think, in the UK. He he did say the talk, and we should did say they turned down his PhD. He did it. Did he do some, a PhD like in Moscow, and they turned it down because he basically yeah, said, and he came over the whole system's got Yeah, yeah, and and I think we should say to people listening if they're interested in uh, checking out these talks. I don't know if they've been uploaded yet, but the CPGB are usually really good at. They were live streaming them, and I think they're probably going on Vimeo. Yeah. Most of them seem to be on Vimeo. Let yeah. me just check. So people, after the fact, can go and uh, check out these talks and make of them what they will. But yeah, Tickton spoke, and it was it was moving. I mean, it was a very kind of uh, subjective appraisal of just how difficult life was, and it was all kind of uh, moving towards the title of the talk was predicting the collapse of the Soviet Union, and the way that Tickton described it was that for him it was absolutely no surprise. And he was almost surprised that it didn't happen sooner, you know, because he described and he kept reiterating again and again this word backwards. He kept just saying how backwards it was. And he would describe, you know, daily life being very difficult, even finding a ballpoint pen or riding on the, you know, the uh, the tram. All of these things he, he found very difficult to do while he was there. And... It was it was interesting. It was very kind of personal. It was it was interesting because it was him. I expected him to go more into the the raw economics. You know what is undergirding this backwardsness. But it was really interesting in that it was this kind of quite Eel. moving kind yeah. of uh, like you know quite diaristic kind of portrayal of what it was like. And it was, he was almost like you could you could tell what was going to happen. It was you know everywhere around you. So that was really interesting. And then um, after him, it was. Uh, Chris Knight, who is a, a London-based academic who runs the Radical Anthropology Group, which I think is based out of SOAS, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. But his talk was uh, entitled Noam Chomsky and Me. <laughs> and uh, it was pretty interesting in that I didn't know his personal history, but a lot of the stuff that he was talking about was stuff that I'd heard because I've been, as a, again, going back to my backstory, as a teenager I was a kind of a, a not particularly theoretically rigorous kind of kind of an anarchist because I was into punk rock music I have a black flag tattoo you know used to go to punk gigs so I kind of was like oh, I'm an anarchist but I didn't really know what that meant it wasn't like I was reading Bakunin you know yeah. I was just into black flag and but I read Chomsky you know and Chomsky always made sense to me and I was like ah oh, this guy he figured, the whole, he's figured the whole thing out and much more recently You'd see these kind of Twitter threads of people talking about all these reasons why Chomsky sucks. 
And then, you you know, people are kind of debunk the debunkers and whatever. But a lot of the stuff that Chris Knight was talking about was stuff that you kind of hear whispers of. But it was pretty interesting. He kind of went into Chomsky's time at MIT and what was going on at MIT during the anti-Vietnam protests, which was essentially a lot of US military testing. And Knight's done a lot of research. You know, it's not like I'm peer-reviewing the guy's stuff. No, he sent me his book, actually, yeah. to, to interview about this. His major point was that Chomsky was like working in a place where they were doing military stuff. Well, he was working on a for fighter pilots that they could exactly. understand your brain waves and do what you wanted without having to use cockpit controls and all this. Well, that according to Knight, he claims that the linguistic computer programming that Chomsky was doing to model language was utilized by the US Air Force, in missile-guided technology. That's his claim. Yeah, I would be I would be extraordinarily surprised at that. I think that they're, <laughs> how they, like a lot of times in America, what they would do is they would get like basic research yeah. and they would put a, a MOD or a, a Department of Defense funding for it and they would make up a reason for why, oh yeah, we'll be able to make fighter pilots that will, that will be able to understand some ter- somebody's internal grammar and then they won't have to they'll be able to respond instantly but really that it's so far away from ever being used and I think like it's just like a cover for R&D state funded R&D yeah that and, seems far closer to how I've always perceived things to be yeah and like Chomsky himself would he would say that 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 research goal was completely unrealistic like nowhere close to being able to be possible to this day he would say that yeah and so it sounds like it's a guy trying to pick a fight with Chomsky and write a book and sell a book <laughs> yeah that's that's uh that was my take on it I think himself and Chomsky had some spat in some emails or some over something reasonably trivial and I think Chomsky mightn't have behaved all that well in the spat yeah, well, I think, and the other point, and I think this is worth making, and it's, I'm not a linguist or a linguistics academic, but Knight, that's his day job, I think, is working linguistics. So I think that that original spat was an academic spat, I believe. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he's not coming from, a, uh, he doesn't come from a, a universal grammar school. I exactly. So you have, so have this, you have this yeah. double thing. Exactly. So I think that's time. probably the... Um, the background, and then later on on that Thursday, returning well, to talk, returning to our program. Yeah, well, now I want to talk about Chomsky for a minute. Okay, <laughs> because like uh, Chomsky's a, it just a point that I was talking to some, probably some of the people that we did the McNair thing off air, and we were talking. I don't know how, because Chomsky was my rolled in, probably like you. But uh, what's interesting with Chomsky is that he'll slag off Lenin and all these different people, but. He, he never slags Marx and he never critiques value theory. He never really critiques historical materialism, which is very, it's interesting. It is interesting. an anarchist. And it's like, you know, I'm not an anarchist, but I'm definitely closer to an anarchist than I am a Stalinist, is the way I put it. (laughs) You know what I mean? And uh, so I just thought I'd put that in there, like, because, I do have a, a liking for for Chomsky, I must say. Still. Yeah, I, I've not. I've certainly not shed that 
as I've sort of perhaps become more radical, you know, and I've I still have you know many of his books on my shelf, and I think you're right. I've no, I've never heard him critique Marx, I, but I, you know, it's so difficult. There's he actually goes and says positive things about yeah, Marx. I think he said he's ba- he basically gets the economics completely right, but he then kind of makes that point that my dad would make that when it gets implemented, because I think he comes from that anarchist background that when it gets implemented, it's going to go bad. But he doesn't even make that. I think he he even makes the point that like Marx was closer to left com than people actually talk about, as in that uh, Marx in the in the latter years of his life did a lot of research on like communes in Russia and about how that you know this decentralized basis might be a a possible model for future. So Chomsky is like. So in the way that some people try and reclaim the young Marx, Chomsky wants to reclaim the aged Marx. Yeah, well, I think he's basically. I don't think. I don't think he ever makes the. I think he blames other Marxists yeah. for bad politics and strategy, as opposed to Marx. Yes. I just thought. We, I just thought when we were talking about yeah. Chomsky, because we don't. Ah, I agree. Keep going there. Yeah. What, what's next? Well, no, so, well, later in that day, it was uh, McNair speaking about the title was. Uh, Identity, politics, and economism, two sides of one coin. And uh, this is a, it's a recurring theme within the weekly work and not just from McNair. And it, I think it's, it's one of, um, as we were discussing off air previously, how it seems as outsiders looking in that there are elements of the way that the CPGB are formally organised and I, I think do genuinely seem very positive. They are clearly open to debate. It seems that members within the party that don't exactly hold the same view can be in the same party and it's not a problem. And that, you know, the idea of factions are probably tolerated, as you were saying that the Dutch comrades are advocating for. One of the things I do return to, and I think the essence of the point is not incorrect that they make at the theoretical level, but it often gets made that intersectionality will negate the ability for the emancipation to move through the class. And I thought it was interesting, McNair went back to his own early activism in the 80s, working in the gay liberation movement, and presented a material case where socialists, through practical organising and action, led to an emancipation within an element of society. And I thought that he made that case very positively. Very yeah, the well. miners, yeah. He was talked about how the Trotskyist group he was a, a part of, the... The IMG. The IMG, the International Marxist Group. Yeah. So they are. And they they basically got, you know, lots of queer folk chugging for for the miners during the miners' strike and actually helping, actually going and striking with them and I think actually fighting with them against the cops. And uh, that... McNair tabled the motion at the General Labour Party Conference in 1983 or four or something like that, and it was basically because of what the how the the gay people helped uh, with the miners, they the miners union basically switched from being homophobic to being. You know, what's the word? Pro gay rights. Pro gay rights. I was going to say homophile, <laughs> but that's, that sounds weird. I don't know what the word is. And uh, so that was a major shift. The thing that was interesting uh, talk, and again, I think maybe it's worth returning to the um, to the way that the sessions were organised, because again, I think this is quite a positive thing that broadly on the organised left is something that, again, if you had any experience of 
dealing with Occupy or any of these more loosely organised assemblages, there is an organisation and a structure to the way that the talks were presented, that people made points and debate was conducted that I thought was positive. People were given space to speak. They weren't cut off and people could speak to each other. And I think that that institutional knowledge of actually how to run meetings, how to run debates is something that the organised left is very good at. And that, that kind of institutional knowledge is embodied in these groups. And that's one of the very positive things. And I thought over the course of the week, that was something that really stood out, that it really was a space where people could get up, they could say their piece, they could respond to each other, and there would usually be the initial talk, responses from the floor, then the speaker could kind of respond to the floor's responses then there'd be some more responses. Yeah, and then on. the speaker would wrap up. And it would be there'd be kind of three hour sessions. But to be honest, I didn't look at my watch once in any of these sessions. Maybe well, maybe once. You didn't go to the planners <laughs> one. No, so we could get onto that later. I'm looking <laughs> looking forward to uh, your breakdown of that. But, but it, no, it's true. You, like the general format was uh, about a forty five minute talk and then two hours of questions and, and feedback and people would talk for like it wasn't one of these ones where there is an hour of a lecture and 20 minutes at the end where it's crammed and no one gets to it was like at the end of it you re- if you wanted to talk you felt you could talk maybe also it's a function of the size of the room too like the room how many people were at the session somewhere between anywhere between 20 and 50 is probably around the numbers somewhere around that yeah, yeah. probably I usually think, about 40 yeah I think I went on both of the Saturdays and I yeah. think on the Saturdays there were a few more obviously because it was a Saturday but midweek I think about that maybe as many as maybe as many as 100 on the yeah. final Saturday I don't know something like that 80 I don't know who knows but yeah I think that's a good point so back to the identity politics one of them I think I don't know if they have a leader I don't know what Jack Conrad's position is uh, in uh, as a comment he got up and he gave like a very dramatic impassioned impassioned talk about how why intersectionality is bad and he says well we don't care if like she's a woman or a black guy or a trans or a whatever the, what we care about is her politics and a Marxist <laughs> we need <laughs> a Marxist yeah did he actually say Marxist he did, I can't remember, yeah. And while he's true in one element, I, I, well, I find it strange that Marxists can make that point and not look at structure. That you have got to look at structure. Like, I like to think of myself as a non-racist person. You know, my missus is black, my kid is mixed race. But, like, I certainly don't have an understanding, or I certainly didn't, if it's, I'm, I'm improving, of the understanding of what is it to be living as a black person in a white country, and you know, and race, you know, you just you think, oh yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not right, but you don't understand it. And I think a party can't hope to be truly communist if it doesn't represent all aspects of life. And if we looked around the room, now I know this is true of probably most of these. Trottish groups, sects, sect, small Marxist sects. Most of them are old. Most of the members are old. But you look around there, and I know that a lot of the people in the audience weren't even from CPGB. They were from fellow travellers in other Marxist groups, which is a very positive thing. And like there was no, 
like there was like good natured debate with people and talk about their experience in the 1970 in this group and that and you're wearing this one now and you're on that one and it was all very camaraderie it was actually very very good yeah. at no stage was there any kind of bar one guy I was at but like there was like there was none of this rubbish that you would associate with all these groups but what was the audience say what was the, what was the audience what percentage was male I would say it was probably 98% male ah, it wasn't that bad it wasn't that bad <laughs> now, there was there was usually if there was 40 people there there was usually 4 to 6 women in the audience I would say so I'd say 85% male I would say of those women that were there one of the members Yasmin I think she's Iranian the other women were white of the of all the men that were there there was one black gentleman an older man probably was 60 I'd say Everybody else was white. Was there any queer representation? Not obvious. You know what I mean? There was no trans people. In fact, in the meeting, there was one extremely anti-trans comment by one of the older guys who I don't think is a member, but is uh, like one of these kind of fellow travellers who made the right-wing points of like, oh, I can identify as a spoon. Why is... You know, trans stuff is just mental illness or something. You know, and it was really negative. After the talk, like, I, I basically got a bit angry and I made a point And I, not in an angry tone, really, but I just basically, uh, what would you what would you say? I said, I chid, chided them. Was it that a word? I think that you just kind of... I said I was disappointed you, you, about yeah, you let it. You let it be known that you did not feel that it was something that made the space inclusive. Which I think was a, a really good point to make, and it made it be known that you weren't happy with what was said, yeah. and said, and you kind of said, you know, this should be a group where you're trying to welcome people in, and I don't think that's a very inclusive comment. And I think that there were other people in the room who they didn't quite applaud, but there were people there that responded yeah. very positively to the comment that you made, and that was really good, and it was encouraging. And then after the talk, McNair actually came and spoke to us, and he kind of said, he said, well, he, I think he said good for making the point it's important to make you know the point and he said but he said but we've had way worse <laughs> he yeah he did but he said he said that people should be able to say what they feel and i think I, we I, agreed with that I, yeah, and well, i and well, i said that tom should also be allowed to say what he feels and then i said yeah definitely yeah like I, I said like i i should you know i don't have any problem with the guy saying it but i don't think he should be immune to <laughs> <laughs> like Response. critique or yeah. whatever but the other thing is like it's not just simply a thing that we're all that everything's open for debate because we don't have talks on why we think child paedophilia is a good thing if somebody was in the meeting there and said oh well I think children are very sexy <laughs> you know and we should be having like a, where's our paedophile faction in the CPGB you know people would run them out the door you know, you'd be reporting them. They'd be reporting them to the. Well, they probably won't report them to the cops. I don't know what different organisations. If that's WP, they wouldn't report them to the cops. But um, so, like certain things, or if somebody was making like explicitly racist arguments, explicitly racist arguments, I don't think that they would be welcome. Or, so I think that certain things aren't acceptable in these things. So I'm not. A, I'm a free speech advocate. I'm a kind of one who's more towards the absolutist end of it. But I don't know if that argument is quite true. But he said something about like how the majority of people who 
wear women's clothes are cross-dressers and they're not getting represented in the debate. Well, I, well, yeah, I think that he did make that point and I think it's a point I've actually heard him make before and I think it's a structural critique on his part that the way trans culture has moved and become more widespread, he feels or perceives that there is an erasure of cross-dressing, which I think probably throughout the 70s and 80s was a more prevalent form of expression for people that had the urges that people can now manifest through trans culture and transitioning, that they used to, you know, older people who are cross-dressers now, I think he felt there was a a level of erasure or were being marginalised at the expense of more openness broadly in society towards trans people. I think that was the point he was trying to make. I know, but what kind of a point is that? Because, like, the thing is, like, you could make a... Here's, like, let me make a similar point about, like, gay people. That, you know, this, it's open now, it's all about gay people, and then, like, some some people are are maybe becoming... You know, having homosexual experiences that they that, is, that are negative for them, or something like... I don't know if it was just about erasure. Like, it, it also seemed to me he was saying something like, perhaps some people... He made a case where a, a friend of his daughter's was kind of felt pressure to become trans when they weren't. I kind of might have that wrong. Do you remember something I'm saying? Something I like that? I think so, yeah. Very, very So, it's, it, the reason why I bring this up is because the Weekly Worker has had some really anti-trans things in there. They wow. have the only thing I would say is that when they've run it, they've usually the following week run a response. And again, it comes back to this idea that, you know, there's forums for open debate and you know But who chooses what the debate is? Do they have ones that are anti black people and then a response from a black person? No. And again, yeah, that was the bad. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. What, what so it yeah. just I was a little bit a bit confused. I don't know if I'm represent misrepresenting Mike's stuff i don't want to misrepresent them but in light of like what lexi and some people have told me that there was some quite anti-trans stuff in the weekly worker oh it would it would lead me to believe that there that's got to probably be somewhat representative of and that the editorial line has to be somewhat representative of the organization one would think that there must be elements within... It seems likely, looking from the outside, that there are elements in the organisation who have negative feelings towards the trans movement. Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't want to speak for them or speak against your point, because I agree with you fundamentally. But I think a point that they might make is that... And this got brought up in one of the talks, and I don't think that it's comparable. But the point that, that they might make is, well, we published an article by Nick Rogers about how Lenin had read Marx wrong. And we, the P, the CPGB PCC, disagree with that. So we're happy to publish stuff we disagree with so that we can debate it. And I'm not saying I agree with that, but I suspect that that might be their response to that. And I'm not defending it. I'm just saying that. But have they had, have they, have they had uh, in the weekly worker, you've been reading it, how long have you been reading it? Three years, maybe. Okay. Have they ever had, like, anti-gay rights articles in it? Exactly. Yeah. You know I what agree. I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah so it's like, it's a Harvard... <laughs> yeah. it's, it's still... The fact that it's written says something. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what. I, like, I don't want to misrepresent people because I'm not into that. But um, 
What what is the last one then? Okay, I went to the last one there. The the, the where I was talking earlier about the Dutch comrades. Oh. They gave a talk on that. And then was that the same evening as the platypus thing? That was the next night. Ah, okay. The Dutch comrades one was really interesting. They talked about all their strategy and what they're having to do. How they've got like a secret. They basically have a, a secret faction who are. Do they have a WhatsApp group? I, 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 yeah, I, it might be a Discord. I think it might be a Discord. Way trendier than WhatsApp. <laughs> Old school WhatsApp. And they were um, they managed to, to get a, a mole on the central committee of the party and all the things they were trying to introduce. Had the mole was an insight telling them about how they were like the central committee were trying to stymie all the reforms that these guys managed to get through. And uh, so it was all very, very interesting to see actual people doing actual stuff in an actual party that are bringing forward stuff that weirdo podcasts like ours and weirdo books you're reading in your in your attic with the light off at four o'clock in the morning with a head torch on you know i do actually people... do that while my six month old is asleep i do read with a head torch on there you go yeah. i knew by the look of you. I, I knew it <laughs> That intense stare. <laughs> it's got to come from somewhere. Right. The next night, the, uh, oh, the, the previous day to you, I went to the I went to the decline of socioeconomic systems in our epoch by Hillel Tickton. Oh, so you went to the Tickton talk? Yeah. Okay. And Tell me that about was, it. I missed the first half. I got the second end of it. He was making some point about like how uh, the, the structure of modern capitalism is changing where it's gone monopolist and how it needs new things to explain it and honestly I asked a question to him about you know when in these things I never I never talk on these things I a lot of times I don't have anything to say I'd like to hear an answer so I didn't give a long speech or anything I just said like do you not think that this tendency towards monopoly is inherent in, inherent in like Marx's analysis of capital and he then went and talked about uh, Monopoly Capital for 10 minutes and didn't respond to my question <laughs> precisely. So I don't know. I think uh, he may have been trying to avoid the question. So I, I don't know. I, I, I wasn't had enough to talk to to really give a, a full down. That's the only thing I can say about it. Yasmin Maher gave a talk. Uh, that's like an Irish person's pronunciation. It's probably Mather. I don't know. Yasmin, I think, is she did one on why the US wants war, why Iran needs the threat of war. Which was interesting geopolitics. That was a good talk. I don't want to go into the geopolitics of it, but uh, it was good geopolitical analysis. And she writes a lot of the articles I was talking about earlier in the Weekly Worker on foreign policy. Stuff that's looking at Iran, Turkey. She's often writing in this. Yeah, it's not. It's interesting, incisive stuff. It certainly seemed to chime with my own thinking on on stuff. I'm drinking a lot of this homemade raspberry whiskey. I'm going to be so hungover in the morning now. Okay. Let's talk about the platypus meeting. Yeah, I look forward to hearing about this. So to preface this, platypus comrades were around on the Thursday and they had spoken during the open floor period of McNair's talk and made some points that were... An American girl. An American girl. uh, Woman, indeed. And made... Like you said, often you kind of want something from the floor that's going to spark, maybe like a question that's going to spark some response from the speaker that's dealing directly with what they were talking about. And it almost felt like some of the points they'd made seemed kind of pre-prepared and there were things that they already thought and wanted to say 
And it was almost like they were making declarative statements as opposed to engaging with the, you know, the, the talk and the topic. And I don't know if that's me being overly cynical, having some understanding of the way that Platypus operates as an organisation, but it certainly seemed like that concretely in the moment. So I'd be interested to hear uh, how the evening set. The, there was a, these, are, these are fringe meetings. These are fringe meetings. So where did, where did they occur? Was it in someone's dorm room? I it should have been. It was uh, no. The fringe meetings are the later ones, but they weren't Vimeo's. I don't think they were broadcast live either. The fringe events were the the late night ones from like eight till ten or something, and they were not broadcast on the internet. I don't think they're recorded either, which would be good for Platypus because this would have to be the worst talk of any description I've ever been to in my life. I can't remember. They did. They don't have. The title here, but it was something to do with Stalin. What can what something to do with Stalin and the new left? left. I, think. I think that was basically yeah. the title, and it consisted of two talk, two kind of people giving a talk. One English guy, or two two English people. It was a a, a guy, twenty five, and a woman as well, about a similar age. It was very funny because they gave this talk. The guy gave a talk. I I can't even remember what it. What he was trying to say, the 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 woman gave a talk. She gave the impression that she had read two books on whatever topic she was talking about, had nearly no knowledge of the new left or of the history of the left, and somebody from the floor asked her. There was an American woman that was out there. She was probably in her sixties, I'd say. And she asked them, like, well, what do you mean by the new left? She asked the, the woman and on the stage. And, like, she says, you know, because the new left is made up of loads of different stuff. And one couldn't answer because she didn't even... I don't think she even knew what who was in the new left. And the woman, basically, she said... Well, she would drop a name, like, oh, what about this guy? And then, you know, the American woman was like, yeah, I knew him. I was in the organisation with him. And like, so what do you mean? Like, and then she'd say, oh, well, what about this guy? I was in that. I knew him too. I, personally, I went out with him for six years. You know, like, it was literally like a 24-year-old person who'd read one book sitting up there in front of people who have actually been through the mill with all this stuff, trying to say something about their organisations when they knew nothing. Another guy asked... A, a kind of a factual question about Stalinism to the to the other guy, and the guy was like, "Well, <clears throat> we don't want to talk about Stalinism." <laughs> it was like we want to talk about like it, like in kind of m- more meta terms, and it was it was just the most painful thing, and the the. The people started leaving one by one. I left after about an hour. I couldn't take any more. There was about a third of their previous audience left. They had sent, obviously, a minder. There was the the person who made that point, I think, in your talk, who was a young American woman. She was about 24. She was obviously of a higher status in the organisation, I would say. It looked like she was sent from the US to be a minder for this session. She said, "Oh, I just, I just, I just happen to be here in the UK at the moment, so I just thought I'd come along." And she sat at the front, and when somebody would ask a question to the top to the table that she didn't like, she would turn around and she would like say, "Well, you know, we're probably more interested in these other types of questions." 
It was just the most pathetic talk I've ever given. It was so bad. They obviously only wanted to basically interlock with with Mike McNair and maybe one or two other people. So when people would have their hands up for questions, there was a black gentleman sitting beside me and they basically he had his hand up and everything he had his hand up first and they would look around and they would say is there any any questions and then they would they would ignore the guy's hand and people would say oh he's got his hand up he has hands up and they would go mike do you have something to say oh man it was it was horrific it was the worst talk i've ever been at it's it's almost worth because i can't get a signal on my phone if you look on the weekly worker website they did like a write-up and there's like quite a funny pithy sentence in there okay so we can maybe give it's it's pretty cutting (laughs) there we go there we go so this is the weekly worker review it says it says in a positive development there were five fringe meetings put on by non-cpgb comrades even if the quality was somewhat uneven there was a rather incoherent opening on Stalinism and the New Left from members of the Platypus group. There you go. It was just the worst. It was the worst one of all time. Like the guy, your man who 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 leads Platypus, the head chief. What's his name again? Chris. Uh, I forget. It'll be on the internet. <laughs> Chris, someone. Chris. Chris Catron. Chris Catron. Yeah. So for the for the tape, that yeah. was before Google got it. <laughs> <laughs> so so Chris Catron like he's a proper intellectual he makes cunningly good Marxist arguments that somehow attract right wing types to the you know why not Trump he has all these stuff and he'll have good arguments and he's a uh, if you had him in the talk group he would be very well able to argue a point but it looks like that this is it looks like they're trying to train art house and critical theory types to, to waffle in a way that is similar but the thing is you have to be really 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 good to waffle in that way and if you're not it just comes across as utter mediocrity and worse i think my perception having listened to katrone be interviewed reading his exchanges with McNair, they went back and forth in weekly worker and on the platypus website he seems to be the, the thing that is the that undergoes it is that he's essentially kind of a contrarian. But like you say, there's enough theory wrapped around the contrariness to be able to move from position to position, ducking and weaving. And like you say, you really need to know this stuff, particularly if you're going toe to toe with a lot of a lot of the guys on that floor. And again, this is a positive of this kind of a group. These guys have been doing this for a long time. Decades. And they've been reading the Marxist classics, Marxist criticism for years. And I don't want to date us, but we're in our late 30s and we've been reading for a while. And this is not in any way to denigrate young people that, you know, young people are wicked. But they are they're evil in, and wicked. <laughs> but, you know, there's only, there's only so much time that you can have read stuff. And it, if you and I think you're right that if you're going to kind of take on and thinking back to some of the points that were made on the floor of the McNair talk, they did seem kind of like contrarian points. And. On the Saturday, some Platypus comrades again made points from the floor. And it was quite interesting because McNair, and this is a talk that we could perhaps move on to, this was, it was McNair really talking about the stuff that's in the book. It was about, the, I think it was called The Political Bankruptcy of the Left. Let's, let's give it the correct title. The Programmatic Bankruptcy of the Left and the Urgent Need for a Thoroughgoing Rethink. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> could, it could have been the sub-subtitle to Revolutionary Strategy. Um, 
But again, the platypus comrades were there and uh, made points that were kind of counterposing points that comrades from workers' fight were making from the floor against McNair's point, and almost just kind of acting as a fulcrum to set them off against each other. So it was difficult to even comprehend what the point they were making was. I think he said that uh, McNair needed to re- reread Lenin and that the workers' fight comrades needed to reread Kautsky. Because I think that the point, that it was perceived at least, that I think that, you know, McNair was arguing for kind of a neo-Kautskyan position and the workers' fight comrades were arguing for a more kind of Leninist position. But, you know, be that as it may. Well, the thing is as well is that the, the, spa, or the platypus, your man, Kiskatron's an expert. Exactly. And it's in the lineage. Their organisation, you could see how the organisation operated by the fact that they sent a minder and it's the antithesis of the feeling you get in the CPGB of an open democratic discussion. The same type of open democratic stuff that actually attracts people to the, to the Labour Party now in England and to the DSA in America and probably to Syriza in these places. And unless you have that as a base, all that something like platypus is is a vehicle for a guru. That's what it is for yeah, me. Yeah, and, it, and it's interesting reading back I mentioned to you off air before, I've, got, I've kind of been reading more kind of bourgeois, I guess, historians' accounts of the radical left in the, in the UK over the course of the 20th century. And a point that they make again and again is that several of these sects really, what they're putting forth is what they would call a line, is essentially almost like a branding position to differentiate themselves from their contemporaries within the milieu. And I think that within the current left, Platypus does offer something quite different. That if you're a young student, because they're mainly operating on university campuses... Rich ones. Is often... <laughs> Only. <laughs> Only rich ones. It's, it's something that is attractive because it, it kind of gives you a patina of undercutting all the stuff that substantively, again, McNair critiques in the book and consistently does, but with this kind of contrarian bent that allows you to kind of not be like, oh, well, let's talk about Stalin, but have no kind of claim to actually kind of engaging really with the kind of the the underlying horror of what Stalinism was. They seem to almost be utilising, because again, they may punch on the floor, utilising Stalinism as this abstracted theory, where it's okay to to deal with it at that abstract theoretical level, but not really contend with the stuff that Ticktin was actually talking about. Yeah, like it's, it's shock jock from the left. You know, it's Bill O'Reilly, Bill O'Reilly of the left. It's how Stern. It's how, yeah, it's, it's shock jock. Left is shock jock. Now, there was a couple of other ones which I didn't make. Uh, I got the end of the Moshe Macover and Tony Greenstein talk, which you got to? No, I didn't get to. No. On uh, Israeli Jews, are they a Hebrew nation? You want to talk a bit on the anti Semitism stuff? Well, I just think, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's such a difficult topic to talk about, but I almost feel like you can't discuss an event of this nature without mentioning that these topics did come up. And it's a very deeply nuanced topic, more than I think that the opposing binary poles allow for. So I think that there are elements within the radical left that have in many ways, an accurate critique, but can equally be occasionally accommodating or perhaps too accommodating without enough critique 
of views that from outside of the milieu can seem to the layperson like they are anti-Semitic. And I'm not accusing any individuals who attended or any individuals who spoke of that. But there were some comments from the floor in particular that did border into that territory. On which talk was this now? This was not at the Greenstein Makova talk. There was, this was... There was one, one I was at where there was a guy and I, who you you know his name who was... I'm not, I'm, I don't want to mention him by name, but I think it's important, again, to raise the fact that this particular individual had tussled with the CPGB-PCC as part of the Left Unity effort, the communist platform within the Left Unity effort, and they publicly denounced his views. But I think it isn't... I think it's impossible to discuss this kind of event without the fact that there often are individuals who, even where there is a structural critique that may be correct, make statements that are, in the best case reading, inflammatory. Yeah, there was a guy who was making the case for, like, oh, there's a material cabal of rich Jewish people in America leading foreign policy in a certain way. You know, it's essentially, it's the old rich Jews running the world thing, just rewritten with a Marxist language, you know, and it's not a good critique at all. And he made some, that one general made the comments in an, an Iranian, in the one about Iran, and I was... Uh, sitting beside one of the Dutch young comrades and he said, is that not like anti-Semitic what he said? And honestly, I wasn't really paying attention. I was spacing out. I was looking out the window and I was like, oh, I, I don't know. I, I, you know." And then afterwards, I was at the next talk, the end of this and uh, Greenstein talk, I think, and he started making similar comments and it was like they were blatantly, I would think they're... To me, I'd find it, you know... You can make that argument and then you can say, you can get the counter-argument. Well, actually, the reason why America is backing Israel in, in that part of the world is for geopolitical reasons, you know. And if, if it wasn't a geopolitically strong area, they wouldn't really be interested in it. And, you know, once you understand that, that actual extra element to the puzzle, you can say, well, oh God, well now I just sound like a goddamn, you know, elders of Zion weirdo. I better change my tack. And the fact that you don't change your tack means that there's something Elder of Zion weirdo stuff going on in your brain. That's the way I think about it. Like, I think that's true. And the thing that I find I struggle with is that you would think there would be a level of self-reflection where people from the outside, particularly when elements within the CPGBPCC are working within the Labour Party, and I think that they see that beachhead that they're defending being attacked by what they perceive to be smears and they're on the offensive and the structural critique can be correct but there are ways that you can go on the offensive that are not going to cause as many problems. So I think there are times when the language that's used and I'm sure that they would defend this as being robust and resolute and part of me understands that. But at the same time, you can't take it out of the context of the current moment where it's only going to get accused of, you know, the witch hunt that they themselves fight against. And it's, it is, I have no answer. I don't even know what my position is. As I've said to you, I have 
Jewish family and it's something that I struggle with because there's a structural critique that on an abstract level I agree with and there's a way of conducting the response to the critique that I can't help but at times find problematic. And I don't know whether that's right or wrong. All I'm saying is that I struggle with it. And that's just me being really honest. Yeah, no, I just think it's one of those things where, uh, like, in in defence of the CPGB, you can't stop people from coming up and asking comments and stuff like that. Absolutely not. And I you think know, that both I was, of us agree. From, that from my point of view, it was like one guy and everybody else was asking reasonable stuff. And, I, you know, I think, like, if you do do the fight back, you know, it only takes you to say one sentence and say the sentence clumsily and someone record it and you've and got they they've got ammunition it. for days yeah and, and even it's, if it's literally just you know god knows i'm glad i have got the editing suite here because i say loads of clumsy shit you know what i mean so did you go to the saturday mcnear the programmatic bankruptcy of the left i did yes and it was it was really good but i think you know if you've read the book and you've read mcnair and you read his articles regularly a lot of the stuff is stuff that you would expect. I thought what was more interesting in a way was the debate afterwards, but more from a nerd history tactic strategy perspective. It should be mentioned that there was a comrade from, I think he lives in Ireland, but he sounded like he was Australian or South African. Yeah, he is, Antipodean yeah. guy. Yeah, he's New uh, Zealand, I think. Guy. Yeah. yeah. From the from the international Bolshevik tendency. Okay, who the hell are they? I've never heard of them. <laughs> they, he's a tross. He is a he, he, I think I he talked see, to his wife. He would and see, she said he was a tross, yeah, so he must be yeah. a tross. I mean I'm sure that he would say he's an Alanat Leninist. Yeah. Um but okay, he was yeah, an inter- he was an interesting guy. He he mentioned in uh other parts. I think he's doing organizing work his in wife, Ireland as yeah. part of uh Extinction Rebellion, trying to kind of radicalise or give Extinction Rebellion some politics, which yeah. they don't really have any of. His wife was Anne Lachine, and she did one ah. of the Russian revolutionary woman on, that was on Friday morning, which I didn't get to, yeah. which was interesting talk. And she actually made some really good points from the floor as well during a couple of the other talks that I thought were really interesting. But, yeah, it got into a kind of historic, strategic conversation. Again, members from Workers' Fight were kind of... Uh, expounding a kind of very dogmatic Leninist position. Your man from the IBT was kind of, uh, you know, extolling the virtue of the Soviets. And it kind of, it, it was very interesting. But I think the way that the talk had been billed, and, and this is not a critique of Monet, it was just the way that it kind of went from the floor, was that it got kind of back in, locked back into those historical discussions which I think we're both very interested in and I found very interesting, but I thought there would be more of the, well, what do we do now thing, which is the thing I often look for in a lot of this stuff and the thing that I found invigorating and energising about reading the McNair but the first time around. I was like, oh, here's all, I've been reading all this theory, all these big, thick books, and here's this one that's like 150 pages long. And it's just like a little manual. And just smashes. Like, Here you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and it has all the history in, condensed, yeah, yeah. concise and clear. And uh, Okay, so let's talk about this. The CPGB, they don't do what McNair talks about. They do entryism into the Labour Party. This is, this is something that we were sort of... Discussing. There's one line in that book 
where he slips in entryism into the Labour Party. He slips it in like literally one sentence and God knows I'll have to go and look and find it. And in the, all the rest of it, he talks about how don't go into them, which is a very strange little... When you read that book, it's talking about don't go into government, don't go in until you have all the forces and you need all the forces in all of Europe and then go in. And then what does their party actually do? They go into the Labour Party. I think... How, it, how, do you, how do you square that circle? Again, and I, I don't want to speak for them, you know, this has been a, a really great discussion and I think, again, I said prior to recording that, you know, beyond encountering them through the prism of reading McNair and reading The Weekly Worker, you know, you look around at the other groups and by far and away, as I said at the beginning, the way that they approach things is the closest to my own personal, you know, conception and analysis of things. And I think that, and this is not to speak for them, but they would argue that, again, not in the same way that Bash was arguing, but that with the rise of Corbyn and the Corbynite left, as small as it is within the Labour Party, there is an opening there. And that socialists need to organise where there is some socialist action occurring, even if it's happening within parliamentary politics at that level. So I think that they would, and again... If CPGB comrades want to come and have a discussion, I'd love to have it. I'd be very interested to discuss what their kind of strategic analysis of the situation is. But it seems clear that Labour Party Marxists, which is, and you know, it's not like it, it's a, you know, it's advertised in the Weekly Worker. It's fairly clear that it's CPGB, PCCC, CADA that are running Labour Party Marxists. You know, I think are they, it, are they just in it or are they it? I think they are it. Yeah, you know, I, and there's there's a great quote. I've got a book by John Callaghan that John Callaghan wrote two books one about British Trotskyism and a later one about the far left and they mainly focused on the history of the far left up until the the 80s when he wrote the books and there's a great line where he's talking about the IMG which is the group that McNair came out of and he did some statistical analysis looking at the number of members and the number of front groups that they were running at a given time and by Callaghan's analysis and who knows if this is accurate or not he estimates that there were, you know, and I'm, this is, I'm kind of making the numbers up, but it was circa a thousand members and there was so many front groups that there was only about 10 members per front group because they were running so many front groups at a given time. But they were all members of the IMG. And I'm pretty sure that because, and again, this is, I'd love to speak to them and find out more, but it seems like the cadre of the CBGB PCCC is so small that it's not like they can afford to just be recruiting more people to send off and be Labour Party Marxists. It's it's called Stan Keeble, who's, you know, ostensibly, if you read the Labour Party Marxist bulletin, right, isn't it, is also a member of the CBGB PCC. And I'm fairly certain that the other members are all CBGB PCC cadre. And I think that's another interesting discussion. It's something that's fascinating to me about them as a group, is that they actually seem to maintain something closer to the Hal Draper idea of being a Marxist centre based around the weekly worker as a newspaper. So that's the centre around which they organise. And I think it's possible that that comes from their origins as being a faction within the old official CPGB, where they were based around the Leninist, which was a factional paper that they ran. And they've kind of maintained that around the weekly worker and that the editorial board and relatively small cadre act as... I don't even know if they'd necessarily see themselves as vanguardist, but it's almost like a vanguardist, coherent cadre 
And there's a, many fellow travellers who read the Weekly Worker around them who are paper in that they read the newspaper members of the broad tendency that they represent. And the actual members of the party, I think, are probably pretty tiny. But it's weird. Like, it seems to act to me like some kind of think tank, like a left think tank. It doesn't... See, I don't know. I don't... Just going from just my first introduction to meeting the people who, for me, passed the smell test, I would say. I did enjoy the Communist University. Yeah, that they don't seem to operate really like a party. Or along the McNairis lines. They don't seem to... Well, they do, as in it seems to be democratic and open and free in speech. Absolutely, yeah. But it doesn't seem to... It's not like they're trying to have a mass party that doesn't go into power. That that strategy, the, the kind of Kautskian strategy. But it, it is interesting. You know, like I, I, I feel... Well, personally, I, I don't know like how, how Leninist Mostamara... I, I feel just even design-wise, I feel like... Having a hammer and a sickle on the weekly worker is archaic, and I don't think it helps. Personally, I I think a lot of older leftists and young Stalinists have a real, not even say a grow, but a, a, a fetish. A, a, yeah, or a love, or some kind of, a, you know, tainted love. <laughs> <laughs> with the symbol which is I don't think is a good symbol anyway but uh, that's neither here nor there I always say that stuff I think the you know the hackening to uh, Soviet iconography. iconography is a negative thing on the left you know I just think there are some that are probably good but as a general rule you know I'm full <laughs> of for Marx and Engels and whatever you want but like the Soviet stuff is it's the big reason for why it's hard to talk about communism yeah. to people. I think, I think, and again, there's, there is an interesting kind of friction at play between the way that they try to look back at the failures and imagine a new tomorrow, but there is always this clinging to the success. And I think Derek said in a podcast a long time ago, I think one of the early analyses of the McNair book, that tell me the year that you think it failed in Russia, and I'll tell you what kind of Marxist you are. Yeah, and I, I think that it's clear from reading McNair that he kind of thinks it was probably nineteen eighteen. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that's yeah. clear. But even with that said, I think that there is still some. Well, he's part... an ex trot. He's an exactly, and you yeah. have to kind of cling to the promise of seventeen. I think, and I think that's hard for people who've dedicated their whole lives to. And I think then that's. You know, what again, did, yeah, it's very, it's, it's just very interesting for us in our kind of mid to late forties, not having been not in forties, thirties. You're thirties, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. I'm not thirty. You're thirties. I'm early forties, but let's yeah. let's not go there. Yeah, <laughs> slowly approaching the middle age. Mid to late forties, you're getting yeah. a shock there. Yeah. yeah, but it it is just interesting because, as you said, in terms of age, we had a lot of guys and a few women in their fifties or sixties. No, some older, some younger. There was some like, young. Anne is younger. Yeah, yeah. But but broadly speaking, there were the young comrades from Holland. The women were actually younger. The women, there was another young woman who was Scottish, I think, as well. The women were tend to be younger than the guys. Okay, maybe they fall into our cohort. But there did seem to be there's this, there just is this disjunct between young, highly optimistic, bright eyed and bushy tailed, and then those who've been in the labour movement their entire lives. I would wonder, how did they recruit? 
I wonder, is there a recruitment drive? So there was one young guy there, I can't remember his name, but it seemed to be like he was like the one young guy who was in it, like literally the only one. I wonder is recruitment even a thing? It doesn't even it doesn't even seem to be a thing. I think that goes back to again, this is purely my spitballing and conjecture that I think as a unit they adhere to basing it around the centre of the paper and the cadre being the membership and that what they're more interested in growing is the broad movement of fellow travellers that read the paper around the movement and that they're probably looking for... There's a term, I can't remember where I read it or heard about it, where they talk about the primitive accumulation of cadre, oh, yeah, which yeah. is what organisations like the SWP do. Yeah. Anyone can come in. Yeah. You know, let's just get as many as possible. Yeah, yeah. And I think that they are more, a few are better, you know, a more rigorous and radicalised cadre. And, you know, we can grow things in terms of people that are reading the weekly worker. But again, I could be completely wrong. And I would love to have a conversation with a cadre member to discuss it further because I do find it really interesting. Like, what is their strategy? Because they're gonna, if they're gonna continue, they need some younger people. And this was a point actually made by a comrade on the first Saturday. I forget which. I think he might have been in uh, a group I'd never even heard of, Socialist Resistance or something. I think that was it. And he'd made the point that post Corbyn, he rejoined the Labour Party, become active in his CLP. And he was like, there are young kids coming into my CRP who are like 16 years old and are like mad for socialism. And he was like, you lot, the CPGBPCC, should be recruiting these guys. You know, it shouldn't be a case of young people proving themselves worthy of your leadership. I think was exactly what he said. You should be leading them. And part of me thinks if the idea is to grow a mass party, which seems to be always be at the end of this, that's what we're going for. I don't know. (laughs) Like, uh, it's the the thing with these smaller sects is that they want to control their politics because they've read all the books. The Central Committee have read all the books and they've studied all the history and they don't want some Johnny-come-latelys coming in in a big wave, taking it over and driving it into the ditch. Which, if you look at the DSA, it kind of what's happened. It was in a ditch anyway. Absolutely. I'm not like, disputing that. Yeah, like but so, the old guard of the DSA... That's what, that's what happened. Gone. Yeah, so the, the thing is... I'm not saying that's bad. But oh, yeah. what happened. Yeah, <laughs> like, like, the thing is, like, they may drive the... The thing is, they may drive the par- a party into the ditch. But the thing is that you will never not... You will never even get a chance to get wherever Power you want to go <laughs> if you don't allow the, the movement in. That's, what I, that's the point I would make. Now, finally... I went to the summer offensive celebration dinner. Ah, I want to hear about this. And it was really, really goddamn good. It was the Friday evening. Now, we were talking earlier about like how you and me were like two isolated, alienated Marxists. I have some internet friends from running a podcast that we do shows and stuff on it, but that's about it. Uh, I do a reading group in my gap now this year and like that's trying to get into. In, in doing some more praxis stuff but we went there anyway and they had the dinner and it was all grand grand but then afterwards they did like like sing along and they did uh, well more like people singing like radical songs like uh, German 19 whatever commie songs Scottish commie songs Irish rebel songs there were some humorous ones one guy got up 
and sang, he got cajoled into sing, standing up and singing this Russian song. And it was about a young uh, revolutionary in 1917 and how he got separated from his, like, he met this girl he fell in love with, this Ukrainian one, and then she ended up getting, like, shipped out to, like, Ukraine or somewhere and he never saw her again. And, like, he sung this thing and, like, he sang it in Russian and I had no idea what it meant. And at the end, he was, like, went to this big, like, this really emotional, and it was fucking brilliant. Now, the guy was... It wasn't a, like a brilliant singer or anything, but it was just like, it was just absolutely brilliant. And all this stuff, I've never been in a place where I had like this, like, it was a real sense of camaraderie. I left the thing and I was buzzing, I must say. I was really buzzing. And I I, I, was, I cycled home and I cycled on the Thames from, from there. I go on the Thames and I cycle like through all the industrial X wasteland stuff and it's, maybe a 10 or 12 mile cycle to where my gaff is here and uh, I was dying for a piss because I had a couple of beers and there's these old jetties that jut out along the Thames where there used to be a factory and now there's not but the jetty is still and I went out and uh, I was like God, I, I, I said oh, I'll go for a piss off the end of the jetty right out in the Thames just for a bit of a, it, was like, it was like midnight or something this stage and, and I was I was like going for a piss and I looked on the ground. Somebody had done some graffiti on the ground and was like, would you be happy if you died today? And you know what? I was so buzzed after coming out of that thing. I was like, fuck yeah, I'm really buzzed. Yeah, fucking take me now, Lord Jesus. <laughs> and it was really brilliant. And the thing is that like all these isolated leftists, like look, most of the people who are on my, that we do the McNair thing, you know, you got Lexi or Derek, myself, uh, who else is there, like uh, Puya, um, uh, Sophia. Most of us, more than some more than others, are isolated leftists and you don't get any sense of camaraderie. And my God, that stuff is what, that's what it's about. Like, that's at least 50% of the goddamn thing. And it really shocked me how much I went, God damn it, like, all this cerebral nonsense we talk on these podcasts, reading our books, thinking, oh, you look at all these wankers on their phone playing, you know, some game or something, you know, and it's like, you know, we're all, I'm reading McNair here, look at me, and it's like, that stuff is, that that's bullshit, like, as in, you've got to connect emotionally with people and culturally and spiritually, and it was like, spiritually, I'm a goddamn atheist, but it was like, it, it was brilliant, and, I know we've been critiquing a lot of the stuff, but like I must say that I was really excellent. And I'm, I've been around, I haven't been in organizations, but I've seen like leftoids operating SWP types and these different types. And you know, you go to and stop the war thing, or you go to uh, Occupy, which is supposedly an anarchist one. You know, I don't know how much it might have been set up on anarchist principles, but there was loads of like. Loads of SWP and all yeah. these people all around it, and there's a smell test problem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you can just you just see them and you just go, oh, I don't know. And maybe that's because I was not as open at the time to that stuff, but I don't think so. And one thing I've got to say for the CPGB, even if we have disagreements on different things or others, uh, you know, about the trans stuff, uh, I was found a little bit questionable, to be honest. But they passed the smell test. I think they're definitely genuine people. And I wouldn't put people off going to them 
the podcast, I won't join any organization because I, I prefer to be independent. But uh, I came across, I came out of it feeling very positive about the whole communist university and the talks. You know, they were really, in the general, they were, the atmosphere and the talks was, were, was very good. What did you? I, I think very broadly I agree. And like I said, I've been reading The Weekly Worker for a couple of years now. And it's. Do you seems, get a print one or do you read it on your phone? I get the print one. Do you? Wow. Yeah. How well, many pages in the well, print one? 12 pages, I think. Every week? Yeah. And I think that that really? in and of itself yeah. actually is no small thing. It's a commitment. That's massive. Yeah. I, I used to managing edit a monthly magazine. So I literally know what it takes to put something out in print and to put out a 12 page printed newspaper every week with interesting, informative, both contemporary and historical debate and analysis. It's pretty fucking impressive. It's, that's like no small thing. And I think that, A, that should be commended and that's their roots. But also the stuff that they advocate for in the paper, and I agree with you, when I went to communist university, it's not a load of hot air. You know, there might have been things that, you know, we have critique stuff, but broadly I would completely agree that my overall feeling was one of positivity and that in one of these groups at least, there is something that is true to what they profess to be and was, broadly speaking, a positive period of time that I spent engaging with ideas that I engaged with through their print organ and it was an interesting manifestation of what they espouse. And at the base, like you said, the elements of what was discussed that we both found problematic, but overall it was a very positive experience and... I would certainly not discourage people to engage with the print publication, the videos or their arguments. And so overall, I was very glad to have uh, attended Communist University 2019. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the one thing I would say as well is that, um, well, I was talking to somebody who runs the London Culture, Left left Culture Club. He was saying he was going, he was thinking of going, but it was so expensive. But that's only for the boarding. Yeah. <laughs> like, so if you're doing a room, it's actually really cheap. It's only like 10 or a day or something. But yeah, what I would say as well is that, you know, while we have been critiquing a lot of stuff, like you go into any bunch of any people, you're going to have disagreements with people over stuff. And like, you know, it's easy being this isolated leftist and saying, oh, well, I liked most of it, but they, I don't like what they said on this. But that's, that is politics. And if people are interested in actually actually being political and not just being not being a consumption, because I do find like that a lot of my stuff is I like consume politics. It's yeah. not a political act. I'm hardly political. I might produce, maybe that's a political act. But like, and I'm sure a lot of people, the listeners will, will, will admit it themselves. They're consumers of the podcast, but they don't I- act... I put my hand up. Yeah. I am one. And I think that what's almost worse, and it's actually something that I I try and avoid. I mean, I, I do do it on Twitter. When I'm doing it, I feel at best ambivalent and probably negative towards it, is that if you are not actually acting, and this is something that's important, This is, and it goes back to them producing the paper, going out and organising protests, they actually do stuff. And that is important. You know, you can agree or disagree with what it is they do, but they actually do stuff. And beyond, I go on anti-fascist marches, I go on protest marches, I don't do much more than that. And part of the reason I attended 
was because in a small way, I subscribed to the newspaper, so I'm supported through that. You know, I used to go and buy it in Houseman's, which is the radical bookseller that's around the corner from where I work in King's Cross. But once I had kids, I couldn't even get out of work to go and buy a newspaper. So now I subscribe and I'm, and I'm willing to support them because there is more than enough good in what they do practically in my perception to support. And I think that a lot of people more than, and I think it's a lot to do with social media and the way that people communicate. People just have to have a fucking opinion about everything. And a lot of people have opinions about politics that they don't carry through. And one of the things I remember when I was younger and before social media, do you remember when the Euston Manifesto was published? The which? The Euston Manifesto. This was oh. the, de- the decent left. This the was in Houston like... The Euston Manifesto. The Euston Manifesto, it was called. When was that? What this was... Uh, I think Derek might have admitted to signing it. It was what a lot of people who were kind of... A lot of them who were lefties... That what year, to become what year are we talking about? Mid post Iraq, it was a lot to do with Western imperialism and just wars and this kind of stuff. But I remember when that occurred. This was all happening like just as I was coming out of uni, and I've I've always paid attention to politics. I did like a politics A level. It's always interested me. But I remember thinking that a lot of these guys that were like you know taking their positions based on the Euston Manifesto, I was like. What are you doing? Your whole politics is taking positions on things. Like, where is the practical application of your position? For you, your politics is having a position. And unfortunately, and I'd be the first to admit this, that's me a lot of the fucking time. Yeah. Is all I do is take positions on things. And I think what you said is really important, that there has to be a point where you try and go beyond taking a position on things. Yeah. So it was really interesting interacting with people who are actually doing something. Yeah, and I think, like... The thing is, as well as the thing there is, like, as well as, like, you know, you're never going to find a perfect political party. Politics has to deal with people. People aren't perfect. People have shitty ideas. People have good ideas. You think they're shitty ideas. The only way you can change them is by action. And it's like, so that's one thing I would like to say, like, you know, if we were critiquing stuff, we're not critiquing it in a way to say, like, this place, this, this is shit. It's more like we think, you know, work that needs to be done here or there, like an IB organisation. Overall, very positive and I enjoyed it and I'd recommend people going again, even just for the talks. Absolutely. If yeah. you're just interested in talks. I think I think if you went, and it's not something, again, being the age I am and having young kids, and also the fact that I live down the road from it, I ain't going to stay there, but if you did want to go and stay there and you spent a week there, listening to all the talks, interacting with the people there, I think it would be, even if you disagreed with most of the positions people were taking, you would have a very interesting week of challenging, thoughtful talks, debate, you can stick your oar in. I thought it was really, there's, there's a good, good smattering of eccentric weirdos there too. Absolutely. You know, myself yeah, yeah. included. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Right. Well, thanks very much. It's... 20 to 11 yeah yeah we've done we've done a good bit so uh, thanks for coming on the show today James it was my absolute pleasure on this episode you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. 
Thank you for listening. And please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network's sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit and Swampside Chats. Mm-hmm.